A battle has been waging now for millennia, a battle between Christ and Satan. It is being fought over you and I and every other person on this planet. At its core, there is just one simple issue. Tonight, we will find out what the battle is really all about. Good evening, everyone. Welcome back to the End of Time series. My name is Sharissa, and what a marathon we've been on the last few weeks in this series. We've been digging deep into some really exciting Bible studies, and so I'm really glad that you are joining us again tonight. I've enjoyed connecting with some of you and hearing from you from all around the world. We want you to know that right now, as always, we're coming to you live from the east coast of Australia. And so if you're on radio, maybe you're listening to Faith FM Radio or your watching us on our website, YouTube channel or Facebook page, especially for our online viewers, we want you to know that you can send in your comments and questions so that I'm able to pitch those to Lyle after tonight's presentation. We have moderators watching the chat there. So please, if you have a Bible question, send it through. Lyle would love to hear from you. And so I'd invite you now to sit back as Lyle presents tonight's presentation. It's entitled The Battle at the End. Nation will rise against nation. There will be droughts, pandemics, and earthquakes. When these things begin to happen, look up and lift up your heads because your redemption is near. Back in the day, there used to be this thing called international travel. Some of you will be old enough to remember it. The way it worked was that you could procure a passport, visa and an airfare and it would enable you to travel to another country. Just like that. So easy. It's a marvellous memory that for those of us who experienced it, treasure it in a very warm place in our heart. Well, back in the day, in fact, back in 2019, along with a friend, I did a research trip to one of the world's most fascinating countries, Ethiopia. Now, we don't typically think of Ethiopia as a tourist destination, and we certainly don't associate sub-Saharan Africa with the ruins of huge cities, massive empires, and monumental buildings. But Ethiopia is different. It's a kind of forgotten, rather random destination that is filled with stunning surprises at every turn. Here you find the remains of an empire that once rivaled the Roman Empire for size, a civilization that built more than twice as many pyramids as Egypt. It has the ruins of huge monumental buildings, ancient palaces, and the largest monolithic obelisks found anywhere on the planet. In fact, the largest obelisk in Egypt weighs a mere 343 tonnes when compared to the 520-tonne monster in Aksum. In the Bible, Ethiopia has the distinction of having the oldest country name on earth still in use, being first mentioned in Genesis chapter 2. In fact, the Bible references Ethiopia three times more often than Persia, Greece or Rome. In Ethiopia, you'll find a country truly forgotten by time and tourists alike. A country that can boast to be the longest continuous Christian nation in existence and the only African nation never to be colonized. 
Sadly, recent decades of socialism and internal tribal conflict have also left it as one of, Australia, uh, one of Africa's poorest nations and a nation that regularly faces starvation. Christianity arrived in the Sudan via the Ethiopian eunuch in the first century. But it wasn't until the third century that it penetrated as far south as the ancient capital of Aksum. Just outside the city, you will find a stone every bit as valuable as the famous Rosetta Stone, which is the centerpiece of the British Museum. But rather than being kept behind plate glass and surrounded by tourists, it sits in a rough stone shed with a metal roof on the corner of a farmer's field beside an ancient rutted dirt highway. And if the Ethiopians have their way, it will never be moved. Written in three languages, Ge'ez, Sabian and Greek, it documents the personal conversion testimony of King Izana. Written for all travellers to read before entering his capital city, it finishes by pronouncing a curse on anyone who would move the stone. Here was a man who wanted the entire world to know what Jesus had done for him. And sometimes I wonder if this is why it has not achieved the fame or the research of the Rosetta Stone. Not only does Ethiopia stun you with its forgotten history, but it's full of natural wonders as well, with mountain ranges rising 14,500 feet into the atmosphere, the Nile running through a gorge 5,000 feet deep that truly rivals the Grand Canyon. After our first day of exploring the wonders of Aksum, our tour guide mentioned to my friend and I that the city would be getting up the next morning at 4am for a special religious festival and that we were invited to join them. Of course, this was not an opportunity not to be missed and with jet lag already keeping us awake, we were keen for the opportunity. Imagine our surprise when walking out of our hotel room at 4am the next morning onto the unlit streets, we found fully half the entire population of Aksum all dressed in white and quietly walking with not a vehicle to be heard toward the main church. Beside that church was a small chapel and it was the contents of the chapel that were the reason for the festival. You see, the Ethiopians believe that within that chapel is the legendary golden box called the Ark of the Covenant, entrusted to Menelik, the son of Solomon and the Queen of Sheba, for safekeeping. As the legend goes, according to the Jewish historian Josephus and others, the protocol for the safekeeping of the ark required that if it was ever under threat, that it had to be secured by a descendant of David in a distant country. When the Egyptian pharaoh Shishak invaded Judea, Menelik in Ethiopia, as the son of Solomon, was the only person who qualified to receive the ark and has been there, secreted away ever since. Well, whether that legend is true or not, we may never know. But the procession we experienced that morning was truly something to remember. We watched as a replica of the ark was carried out of the church and used to lead the procession through the night. The men leading the way, followed, the, followed by the women, many of them holding candles, they sang together in ease, an unchanged language older than Latin and still in use. The men would sing and then the women would reply, then the women would sing and the men would reply. As far as the eye could see down the long wide streets, a sea of people dressed in white and holding candles were present to remember the law of God and thank him for his blessings. Probably the one thing that disappointed us more than anything else was the size of the replica that was carried. You didn't actually get to see it because it was in a box covered by a decorative rug 
but it was way too small and way too light. In fact, it kind of looked like an empty box being carried on the head of the priest. The actual Ark of the Covenant was 1300 millimetres long by 800 millimetres by 800 millimetres and would have weighed about 85 kilograms. I'd like to see anyone carry that on their head around the streets of Axum. Tragically, the Tigray region of northern Ethiopia has recently been involved in a civil war. On the 28th of November last year, Ethiopian government troops entered Axum with orders to kill every male above the age of four. Many of the citizens had already fled the city, but that day approximately 720 unarmed civilians were massacred in the streets. The bodies were unable to be buried for three days until the police arrived and arranged a ceasefire. For my friend and I who visited this amazing and ancient city, we have very grave fears for the safety of the friends that we made during our stay. However, the mystery of the lost ark of the covenant continues. Not everyone is convinced that it found its final resting place in Ethiopia and theories abound. They range from the plausible to the outright ludicrous. The last time the ark is mentioned in the Bible is at the dedication of the temple built in Jerusalem by Solomon. That temple was raided by Shishak, pharaoh of Egypt, during the reign of Solomon's son Rehoboam. While the Bible is brief in its account, the records in Egypt depict the spoils taken from Jerusalem at that time. But the ark is conspicuously absent. Finally, it was Nebuchadnezzar the Babylonian who captured Jerusalem and completely destroyed the temple, burning it to the ground. Somewhere, most likely connected with one of these events, the ark vanished. The, book, the books of Maccabees are a semi-historical work primarily dealing with the history of the Jewish Maccabean revolt against the Greek rulers of the time. It contains a mixture of history and propaganda. According to this account, the ark was taken by Jeremiah just before Nebuchadnezzar's invasion and hidden in a cave in Mount Nebo. The cave was then blocked up and lost to history. This is plausible from the perspective that the ark being the greatest treasure of the Jews would have certainly been secured before it came under threat of capture. Along with that story, there are a lot of other facts from the Maccabean books that we know to be historically accurate. And then a number that are definitely not. Now, some claim that the Knights Templar, who spent more than a decade tunnelling underneath the Temple Mount, found the Ark and that it was the secret for their overnight wealth, success and rise in power. The Temple Mount, and particularly the Western Wall area, is riddled with tunnels and caves and it would make sense that if the Egyptians or the Babylonians were camped outside the city making escape impossible, that the Ark would have been secreted somewhere inside those tunnels. Of course, Nebuchadnezzar may have captured it and taken it to Babylon, but if he did, it would be surprising that it would not have been mentioned. And then again, he did take a menorah, which was returned to the Jews at the end of their captivity, only to be captured by the Romans nearly 700 years later. Why preserve a menorah but not the ark? In more recent times, an adventurer called Ron White claimed that the ark was in a cave underneath Golgotha where Jesus was crucified. He claimed that when Jesus died on Calvary and the earthquake happened, the rocks cracked and that the actual blood of Jesus dripped down onto the mercy seat of the ark. It's an exciting theory, but with a number of major problems. The first is theological. 
Jesus died on the Passover and blood was never applied to the mercy seat of the ark at that time. If it had been, it would mess with the whole theology of salvation and invalidate Christ as our ever-living mediator. The second problem is that no evidence other than Ron White's word has been produced. And finally, we now know that he copied the concept from an earlier Roman Catholic tradition and modified it slightly. The earlier myth was identical in every respect, but rather than the ark being under the crack to receive the blood of Jesus, it was the body of Adam, and that as the blood trickled down his forehead, it cleansed the world of original sin. A number of years ago, there was even a theory amongst the British Israelites that the ark had been taken by Jeremiah to Ireland, where he founded a dynasty and buried it in the hill of Tara. A group of British Israelites tried to excavate the hill, but were stopped when the excavation became destructive. For all the excitement that the Ark of the Covenant can generate, few realise that it was merely a chest built to contain treasure and that the real treasure was on the inside. That treasure was so important and controversial that the entire cosmic war between Christ and Satan for thousands of years has been centred on the contents of that sacred box. Think about it. God has drawn a bullseye on the contents of the Ark of the Covenant. You see, in our world, we have the Holy Land. That's the land of Palestine or Israel. In the Holy Land, we have the Holy City, Jerusalem. In the Holy City, we have the Holy Mountain, Mount Zion. On the Holy Mountain, we have the Holy Temple. Then within the Holy Temple, we have a holy place and then a So we have our courtyard followed by a holy place, followed by a most holy place. And then the centerpiece of the most holy place is the holy ark of God. And within that ark is enshrined a treasure that is truly older than time. It is the holy law of God. The Bible says that when Lucifer first sinned, that he attempted to take over the government of God. It was the first coup of all time. The Bible describes it. This way. How are you fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? How are you cut down to the ground who weakened the nations? For you have said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit also on the mount of the congregation in the sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the most high. The existence of government is defined by the existence of law. And when one government or individual tries to take over another government, the purpose is to change the law of the government that it is replacing. The issue at the centre of this conflict in the universe is the law of God. And it was that law that God made the centrepiece of the holy ark of God. Ezekiel describes the events this way. You are the anointed cherub that covers, and I have set you so. You were upon the holy mountain of God. You have walked up and down in the middle of the stones of fire. You were perfect in your ways from the day that you were created, talking about Lucifer, until iniquity or sin was found in you. The Bible says that sin was found in Lucifer way back then, long before the creation of our world. And sin can only exist where a law exists to sin against. Paul states, Because the law works wrath, for where no law is, there is no transgression or no sin. Then he says again, I had not known sin, 
but by the law, for I had not known lust except the law had said, Thou shalt not covet. It's very simple to understand. We all know you can't break a law that doesn't exist. And clearly, when we see the way God honoured his law by placing it at the centre of worship, we find the law that defines the very existence of sin. The law of love that Satan fights so hard to eradicate. No wonder the whole world today is arrayed against this law. Look at modern society. Could anything be more hated than something that tells us that we are a sinner in need of Jesus? Is there any single subject that can stir up more anger right now than, say, for instance, the seventh commandment that calls us to avoid all types of sexually immoral living? That's a message our world is desperate not to hear, and they are doing all they can to double down and hide the pain by denying its existence. And not only do they deny its existence, but they endeavour to force everyone else to affirm their rebellion against God's holy law. Of course, all of this was predicted long ago. The Bible says that the last great attack of Satan's battle against God will focus on God's holy law. Let's find out about it as we dig into tonight's subject. Oh, I am looking forward to this dig, Lyle, because I think we're touching on a very relevant subject to today's world. Absolutely. And uh, as we set ourselves in gear for an exciting Bible study now, just a reminder, we are live. And so if you have questions that have been coming to your mind as you've listened to that presentation or as we continue the discussion, send them in on the chat. Also, with each presentation, there's a free offer. And tonight's is this booklet here. It's called Transforming Happiness. And if you'd like to obtain your free copy, simply text the word LAW to the number on your screen or if you're listening on radio, 0428-833-386. And Lyle? We're ready to start, but do you want me to give you a question from a viewer first? Yeah, maybe we should have some questions first. And also a quick reminder, make sure you hit the subscribe button. Just, you know, that button at the bottom of the screen there, hit subscribe and make sure that you take these presentations and share them with all of your friends. We, we, just, want to, we just want to spread the word of God wherever it can go. Hey, that's a great idea. All right, this one is coming from a Facebook viewer who sent it in to our messenger. Yes. And they said, is it okay to be vaccinated? Are we accountable or not? I think they're worried that it could have something to do with the mark of the beast. Okay, so uh, this is an interesting question and one that is kind of, I mean, hey, is there any bigger question filling up our social media feeds right now? I kind of think that 90% of my social media feed is about COVID or the vaccine or whatever it might be. Here's, here's what we find. The Bible says nothing about vaccines. And so we can't give you a Bible verse either for or against vaccines. It is not in the Bible. And so you can't use the Bible as a way of justifying not to have a vaccination. Now, lots of people have a personal conviction against a vaccination, and I respect that because I believe in freedom of choice on this particular issue. I think it's a terrible idea for the government to try and enforce these things. But from a biblical perspective, there's no prohibition to receiving the vaccination. All right. People should pray and make up their own minds. Exactly. People should pray and make up their own minds. It's, it's a decision for you to make between you and God. 
All right. This one is from the other day, coming from uh, to us from Anna. I'm not sure if she's watching tonight, but she's on Facebook. She said, in the final days, there will be a new ruler. He must rule for a short time only. Just as quickly as he rises, he shall fall. Is it the Communist Party? Okay, now this is an interesting question because... Um, yeah, the final day is the new ruler that rules for a short time. And so you'll find this in Revelation chapter 17. This is where it speaks about it. We're going to flick over there very quickly. And the question is correct mostly mm-hmm. because what you'll find when you actually read the words of this prophecy, the ruler has been around for a very, very long time, but there is a coalition that forms for a very short time based around this ruler. So let's go to Revelation chapter 17. We'll cover this quickly. Uh, Revelation 17 and we'll go down here to verse 12. The Bible says, And the ten horns which you saw are ten kings. Uh, obviously, political leaders, kings, uh, we understand this language. The number 10 in the Bible, uh, also symbolic of the whole world. So we're dealing with you know, the political leaders of the whole world at the end of time which have received no kingdom. Notice the singular word, ten kings, plural, no kingdom, singular, are coming together of the whole world at the end of time against God, uh, which have received no kingdom as yet, but received power as kings one hour with the beast. Now, the beast here is referred to by a number of different names in the Bible. In some places, he's called the man of sin. He's called the little horn. uh, He's called the antichrist. Uh, he's called the king of the north. These are all they're called the beast, etc. Mm-hmm. So that he's known by a number of different names. But I want you to notice that uh, the beast here hasn't just risen onto the scene. You can read back through Revelation chapter 17. And the beast has been there all along. The issue here is this coalition that forms for this very short space of time at the end. The Bible says in verse 13, these have one mind and shall give their power and strength Unto the beast. Okay, so the beast, the Antichrist has been there in the past, is here in the present, will be here in the future. If you've got questions on that and you'd like to know who the Antichrist is, we don't have time to cover it in this series. But if you go to the end.digital website, you can click there on my Bible study series. It's called The Prophetic Code and you can get it entirely for free. You do it as a course and uh, they'll, they'll send that out for you. So just go to the end.digital website and you can click on that right there. And there's several Bible studies dealing with the subject of who the Antichrist and the beast is. But, oh, am I saying too much on this one? Oh, you're getting really into it. Okay. <laughs> I'll just point out something very quickly. Yeah. In relationship to the man of sin or the Antichrist, uh, the Bible says in... Uh, where am I going? Let me go to Second Thessalonians very quickly. Second Thessalonians. And the Bible says, verse 7, For the mystery of iniquity, that's the man of sin, does already work. Only he who now hinders will hinder until he is taken out of the way. And so the Antichrist was already there in Paul's day. John says that the Antichrist was there in his day. And the Antichrist has been here all the way through. He just forms this special coalition at the end of time. There was something hindering so that you couldn't see him at that time. But we've been able to see him since. Well, you've packed a lot into that answer, Lyle. And I'm glad you gave a plug for the prophetic code because it's on the website. I did check it today. <laughs> and yes. I did see that. So that would be a good place to go for further study. All right, I think we should start digging. We should. We should. Let's topic. get into it. This is a great subject. The law of God. I love the law of God. It's just amazing. Uh, why don't we start with 
some very simple verses. Romans 6, verse 23. We're just going to rattle through these fairly quickly and right. point out the obvious. Let's, right. let's deal with some obvious points. So some of the main essences of yes. these verses. All right, so Romans 6, 23, you said? Yep, the um, essence of that one. The wages of sin is death. Yes, and the gift of God is eternal life. All right, the wages of sin is death. We then have to figure out, okay, then what is, what, what is sin? And how many people have come under the condemnation of death? What is, it, what is it that actually condemns us? How did we end up being condemned? Sin is obviously breaking a law because where there is no law, there is no sin. We read that in Romans chapter 4. Uh, so we're, it's obviously a problem here. We've all sinned. We've all broken the law. How many of us have sinned, Romans 6.23? For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Okay. And now 1 John 3 and verse 4. Whosoever commits sin transgresses also the law, for sin is the transgression of the law. Okay, so there you actually have a definition, a Bible definition for what sin is. The Bible says that sin is the transgression or the breaking of God's law. Mm -hmm. That's really simple. Because if you are driving down the road and you break the speed limit, you have sinned against the law of Australia and you're going to get a speeding fine if you get caught. I have experienced this. Sadly, I think we all have. <laughs> yes. So I guess then ah. the question is, well, how many laws does God have? What law is this? Okay, so there's a number of laws in the Bible. There's a good question you asked right there. A number of laws in the Bible. You have the laws of health and hygiene. Mm -hmm. And we've certainly been hearing a lot about those since COVID. All of the systems for dealing with COVID, by the way, that we have, uh, particularly in the early stages of quarantining and hand washing and so forth, they're all in the Bible. They've been written down here for three and a half thousand years. Good point. Um, so laws of health and hygiene, they stay. You've got the ceremonial law. The ceremonial law began as a result of sin. That was the law of sacrificing animals. And it ended with the sacrifice of Jesus on Calvary. Uh, you've got the laws of the theocracy. They were the civil laws mm -hmm. for um, the Israelite and then Jewish people. And so they begin with Moses and they end with the Babylonian captivity. Um, so those are some of those. But then you have the eternal constitution of the government of God, which is the Ten Commandments. Okay. And that's the one the Bible is talking about when it says, whoever commits sin transgresses also the law, for sin is the breaking of God's law. And we know that because when we go to Romans 7 and verse 7, which we read earlier, but we'll read it again. I had not known sin, but by the law, for I had not known lust, except the law had said, thou shalt not covet. So there you find the law that defines what sin is and reveals what sin is to Paul. Mm. It reveals his sin and thereby it reveals his need of a saviour. Okay, uh, let's look at another example in James chapter 8. Sorry, Chapter 2, verse 8 to 12. Sure. Here the Bible says, If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, for he who said, Do not commit adultery, also said, Do not murder, so speak and so do as those who will be judged by the law of liberty. Thank you. Okay, so which law, in, in which law are you going to find, Thou shalt not commit murder, Thou shalt not commit adultery. Thou shalt not lie. In the Ten Commandments. That's all in the Ten Commandments. The, the, the Ten Commandments are famous for this. And so what you're going to find in the Bible is that the New Testament talks more about the Ten Commandments than the Old Testament does. Some people are surprised by that on a per capita basis. But it actually does. It has a lot to say about it. Mm -hmm. And this is the law that defines... If you take away the law that defines what sin is, you take away sin. And sin ceases to exist. Take away the law, there's no such thing as sin. 
There's no such for a lot of other things. Yeah, I come across Christians that are like, oh no, the law was done away with it, it was nailed to the cross. Well, if that was the case, then sin was nailed to the cross as well and sin no longer exists. Really good point. That's not what the Bible teaches. All right, Lyle, let's take a question or two at yes. this point. Um, this one came in through Facebook, through, the, through Messenger again, from Clint. He's asking, my question is, how literal is the Bible text that says the gospel shall go to all the world and then shall the end come? Is this going to all the world done by us or by the angel you spoke of the other night? Thank you. Okay, so who does it go by? The answer is found in what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 28. Let me just turn over there very quickly. Matthew 28, it says, Jesus says in verse 18, All power is given unto me in heaven and earth. Go you therefore and teach all nations. So you um, teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I've commanded you, and lo, I am with you always to the end of the world. So the Bible says that work is ours. Then the Bible says, well, then the question says, how, how literal is that? Okay, think about it this, this way. When Jesus comes back to this earth, the opportunity for salvation is going to close on everybody who's living on this earth. Mm -hmm. It's going to be finished over. Jesus can't do that or wouldn't do that if there were still people who hadn't made a final decision either for him or against him. So the only way Jesus can close the opportunity for salvation on the entire planet while people are still living is by everybody making that decision before Jesus comes back. That work is ours and that's our job to do. All right. That's, that's, that's why we do the end.digital here. We just true. love to share Jesus with people and we just love the fact that this is just going globally. I mean, you do something digitally these days, it goes the whole world. It's amazing. We're literally hearing from you from around the world and it's really exciting. Yes. All right, so this one is from Barry and Barry's watching us on Facebook. Great to have you, Barry. And he says, I would say, why is Satan fighting God since he is a God of peace? Well, Satan hates peace and God is somebody who loves peace. And if you're somebody who hates peace, then you're going to try and get rid of peace and God is going to restore peace. So that's probably the simple answer. The reason... And we talked about this the other night, and if you missed it, it'd be worth going back and looking at the presentation where we talked about uh, you know, the war between Christ and Satan because when you, when you consider that, that, that war, the question is why has it extended for such a long period of time? Okay. The reason is because when God reestablishes peace, he wants to do it in such a way that war will never come back again, ever. And so by letting it continue for a period of time, it gives everyone the opportunity to see the results of sin and see the results of rebelling against God's law and say, we never want to do that. That way they make that as a choice rather than God forcing them. If God forced them, the moment you know, he just made it impossible for people to sin, love would cease to exist because without the power of choice, love cannot exist. All right. This is another really good question coming to us from YouTube. Chris is watching us there. Great to have you. He asks, are there aspects of the Levitical laws that are part of the eternal law, for example, dietary laws? Okay, so uh, here's the... the, um, So so I'm going to let you all in on a little secret here this evening. I'm vegetarian. (laughs) I think you're vegetarian too, Sharissa. Yeah, I am. Okay, so we're vegetarians. So here's the good thing. (laughs) When we get to heaven... 
You are all going to be like us. You think about that for a moment. In heaven, there is no death. And so how are you going to be anything other than a vegetarian in heaven? So, you know, Sharice and I are just sort of getting ready for it a little bit ahead of time. Um, <laughs> the Bible doesn't require that. But it uh, has certainly been a lifestyle choice that I made when I was in my 20s and I've never really regretted it. It's been fantastic. Uh, the question, I've got sidetracked. So the question, are there aspects of the Levitical laws that are part of the eternal law? For example, they said dietary laws, which got you going there. Well, that kind of supersedes the dietary laws, mm-hmm. you know, because the dietary laws in, in, in the book of Leviticus are about the animals that you can and cannot eat. Mm-hmm. It's superseded by, by the fact that in heaven we'll all be vegetarian, as Adam and Eve were in the Garden of Eden. All right. Well, Lyle, maybe we should get back to the Bible study and there's more questions coming. So we'll... Ah, keep them coming. We'll... Keep them coming. Yeah. Do you want one more? Uh, no, we'll, we'll get back, back into our Bible it. study okay. and then we'll come back some. All right. All right, where are we up to? We're, I think we should talk so, about the purpose of the law. Yes, please. So we've talked about the importance of the law. We've shown that, you know, God's drawn a bullseye on this world. This is the, most, this is the thing that he considers to be most holy. This is what the whole battle is raging over, and he's put it right on this planet and put it front and center there for us. Okay, but we've got to find out the purpose of the law because some people get confused and think that the purpose of the law was or is to save people. Some people get confused and think its purpose was to save people in the past and that's now changed, that we're under grace, or that its purpose is to save people now. Well, I'm going to say this. It's impossible for the law to save you. That is not why God gave it. James, James chapter 1, verse 23 to 25. Sure. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man observing his natural face in a mirror. For he observes himself, goes away, and immediately forgets what kind of man he was. But he who looks into the perfect law of liberty and continues in it and is not a forgetful hearer but a doer of the work, this one will be blessed in what he does. So the Bible describes the law of God as a mirror. So I tend to be a bit of a petrol head, right? And so I'll be working on cars sometimes and sometimes, you know, your hands are covered in grease and then you scratch your face and then your face gets covered in grease and I go inside and the mirror speaks to me. (laughs) And the mirror says, Lyle, you've got grease on your face. Mm. So do I get the mirror and rub the grease off my face with the mirror? Not at all. (laughs) Not at all. That's not going to work. It's just going to make the mirror dirty. The mirror is telling me that I need to be washed with water and soap. And the Bible describes the Holy Spirit as being, you know, washed in the, by the Spirit. Mm-hmm. And so uh, the purpose of the law is not to make me clean. The purpose of the law is to point out my need of a Saviour sure. who can make me clean. Uh, I think there's another good verse in uh, Galatians on this one. Uh, yes. Where did I put that verse? I had it here somewhere and now it is. Disappeared, Galatians 3 and verse 24, right there it is. Therefore the law was our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ that we may be justified by faith. Okay, so we are justified by faith. How do we find out we need that justification? Because the law comes along and as a good schoolmaster says, you are a sinner, you need justification. When we listen to the school teacher, listen to the law of God, we go to Jesus. So I think you've made a really good point here. Maybe you want to unpack it a bit more. The law doesn't cleanse us. No, it does not. It does not cleanse us. It does not make us clean. It shows us we need Jesus to make us clean. Does it save us? Not at all. No. Okay. No. It's not its purpose. Mm -hmm. Okay. So, um, and, and, you know, 
once again, you have, I, I have Christians who sometimes ask me the question, they say, well, you know, there used to be this period of law. And under the period of law, people had to keep the law of God and that was how they were saved, which is kind of weird because then you're going to get two groups of people in heaven. You, know, you turn up and say, Abraham, how did you get to heaven? Well, I got here by keeping the law. How did you get here? Well, I got here by grace. You know, we're not going to have two groups of people in heaven. That makes no sense at all. Yeah. And uh, in fact, Paul directly addresses this issue and clears up any kind of misconception that may have arisen around this issue uh, in a number of different places. But Galatians chapter 3 and verse 11 is one of those places where in that passage, in that context, he actually specifically mentions Abraham. All right, Galatians 3.11, but no one is justified by the law in the sight of God is evident for the just shall live by faith. Okay, so he, he says, look, no one, no one is cleansed, no one is justified, no one is made right by the law. He says, that's obvious. Mm-hmm. Why? Then he quotes the Old Testament and he, and he establishes an Old Testament principle, the just shall live by faith. Read to me from Habakkuk in the Old Testament, chapter 2 and verse 4. It's word for word. The just shall live by his faith. That's right. Paul is quoting directly from that passage to show, and, and he says, it's obvious that no one, not Abraham, not David, not Paul, not Adam or John or anyone or you or I has ever been justified by the law of God. There's only one standard of salvation, and that is grace. Grace alone. Yes. So we should look at that. Yeah. Have you got some while we're there? We should talk about grace. Why not? Yes. <laughs> Ephesians chapter two, verse eight and nine. You all should know this one off by heart. It's a beautiful one. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, for it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Okay, the Bible says that we are saved by grace. What are we saved from? What do we say? There's a great verse in uh, Matthew chapter 1 and verse 21. And she will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Okay, so think about this. We are saved by grace. Therefore, grace is the power by which God saves us. Mm -hmm. From what? Sin. From sin. What is sin? The transgression of the law. Okay, so we're saved by grace from the transgression of God's law. Through faith. Do away with the law of God, you've done away with the need of grace. It's just irrelevant. Oh, Lyle, we're getting, oh, we do. get deep now. <laughs> yes, this is a great subject. It is. And the reason it's important is because so many people are fighting so hard to get rid of it. I just, it just my head in. It's like, what, which one of the Ten Commandments don't you like? I mean, why do you want to have, why are you so desperate to have it nailed to the cross? Which one do you object to? Mm. I like all of them. Me too. They're fantastic. Uh, look, if you want more on tonight's presentation, we just want you to know, please text in for tonight's free offer that's connected with it. It's called Transforming Happiness. You simply text the word law to the number on your screen, 0428-833-386, and you will get that. Um, someone will get it to you. Now, Lyle, shall we just take a couple more we questions? We need to take some more questions. We de- uh, definitely do. To see what we've got here. So here's one from Harry. And he's asking, was God's law broken in the Garden of Eden before the law was given to the children of Israel on Mount Sinai? Okay, let's think about the Garden of Eden and let's think about the Ten Commandments. Uh, Let me see. When they ate the fruit of the tree of garden, God said, you shall have no other gods before me. Mm -hmm. So they chose themselves as gods right there. Uh, When God came looking for them in the garden, they hid themselves from God. The Bible says, honor your father and mother. Don't go hiding from them. Uh, the Bible says that the wages of sin is death. And so when they ate the fruit of the tree of the garden of Eden, they brought the penalty of death upon themselves. Uh, 
Um, and so they killed themselves. The Bible says, thou shalt not covet. They started by coveting the fruit before they ate the fruit. Um, how, many, how many of these commandments do you want me to list? There were so many commandments that were broken in the Garden of Eden. I could probably build a case for just about all of them being broken there at that particular time. Uh, the Bible says, thou shalt not lie. And, you know, there, there they are hiding from God, blaming everybody but themselves. Hmm. Yes, that was the law of God that was broken in the Garden of Eden. All right. You find all of the Ten Commandments, by the way, in Genesis, long before they're given on Mount Sinai. Really good point there too. Uh, this one is a comment uh, from someone and they said, it's all too complicated. I will just follow my own laws I set for myself, such as treat others how I want to be treated or be kind to all. Can we just do that? Like, do we need God's law? Yeah, you know, and this is the thing. If you were to take the laws that run Australia and print them all out, you know, copy, paste, control P, print it out, you would not fit it in this room here just on sheets and sheets and sheets of paper, and you would never understand it. Here's my challenge for you. Exodus chapter 20 is the Ten Commandments. There are just ten. And you can teach those to a toddler to memorise. I know because I once had two toddlers and they both had all ten memorised word for word. God's law is so simple and that's the beauty of it he's not trying to make it complicated like Australia does he makes it simple this is not hard to follow Exodus chapter 20 you can read the whole thing right there thank you Lyle I think we should get back to our Bible study okay let's do some of these Bible verses rapid fire shall we okay so we need to know hasn't Jesus given us a new commandment all right Matthew chapter 22 verse 37 please read it for us yes the Bible says you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart with all your soul and with all your mind this is the first and great commandment and the second is like it you shall love your neighbor as yourself which kind of goes along with what our questioner was questioning it does love God and love each other that was what she was saying mm-hmm and what she's done there, or was it a she, a he or a she? It was a he. It was a he. What he's done there, <laughs> sorry, what he's done there is summarise the Ten Commandments. Yeah. And, and people read this in, in, in the book of Matthew and like, Jesus did away with the Ten Commandments. He made a new law. They don't read the next verse. Next verse, please. Uh, that's all I have. Oh, a, a, a little bit further down there, uh, verse 40. It says, on these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Mm-hmm. So the entire law of God, the first four commandments are about love to God. The last six are about love to each other. It's really simple. It's true. Okay. Because how would you know how to love God if you didn't have the Ten Commandments? Exactly. How to love him? And how would you know how to love your neighbour? Indeed. Okay. Now, of course, Jesus was giving nothing new when he summarised the Ten Commandments. Notice what it says in Deuteronomy 6, verse 5 and Leviticus 19, verse 18. This is the Old Testament. This is the first one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul and with all your strength. That's Deuteronomy. And then Leviticus, you shall love your neighbour as yourself. I am the Lord. Okay, so Jesus Jesus was simply summarising the Old Testament and he's saying in the Old Testament, love to God, love to each other is a summary of the Ten Commandments. In the New Testament, Love to God, love to each other is a summary of the Ten Commandments. That's simple. Mm-hmm. Okay, a couple other uh, verses here. Romans 13 verse 10, the Bible says, Love is the fulfilling of the law. The law is all about love. Therefore, the law is a transcript of the character of God. No wonder Satan hates it so much and fights against it. 
First uh, John two verse four. He who says, I know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. Wow. Don't hold back, John. <laughs> Say it as it is. Yep. The Bible speaks for itself. First John chapter 5 and verse 3. Well, this is the love of God that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. Christians come to me and complain about the Ten Commandments and I'm like, why? Which one don't you like? <laughs> Seriously? Which one of the Ten Commandments have you got a problem with? I love them all. First John, sorry, John, Gospel of John, chapter 14 and verse 15. These are the words of Jesus. He says, if you love me, keep my commandments. I think that's pretty simple. God's law is all about love. There's love to each other and love to God. It's that simple. Building a very and it tells us how to. Yeah. This is a really good uh, case that's coming together here. I'll just check if we have any new questions coming through. Here is one from Vladimir. He's watching us on Facebook and he's asking, the Ethiopians were Sabbath keepers. What happened? Still are. Been there. Back in 2019. Yep. Never changed. There you go. Uh, this one is from Van. Press, uh, she's watching us on uh, Facebook and she's asking, how can you love the unlovable? Love your yes. and yourself. How do you That's do? a major challenge. Ooh, Jesus says some hard things. Matthew, where are we? Matthew chapter 5. Wow. But I say unto you, love your enemies, bless those that curse you, do good to those that hate you, and pray for those that despitefully use you and persecute you. <laughs> All I can say is take this passage to God and pray about it every day. And God will change your heart. Does and it, don't stop praying until yeah. your heart changes. Uh, when it says we have to love our neighbor, does it mean like we have to like them? No. Okay. But we have to love them. We have to. And it's kind of like, you know, you can't love somebody, somebody by having to love them. When you love someone, it's because you want to love them. And so we need to pray that God will give us love in our hearts for everybody. And we might have the nastiest neighbor on the planet, but we need to be praying that we can be neighbors with them for eternity in heaven. Mm-hmm. Amen. All right. Best way, to, best way to conquer your enemy is to lead your enemy to Jesus Christ because then he ceases to be your enemy. That's a really good answer there, Lyle. Here's the last one we'll take and then we'll go back to what we were doing before. Vladimir again. Can we preach the love of Christ without the law of Christ? No, that's impossible. Because the law is a transcript of the character of God. It is telling us how to love. That's what the law is all about. It is how to love God, how to love each other. And when people preach about love, often they don't reference the law by saying, oh, okay, the commandment says this or the commandment says that. But any time they're preaching about the love of God, they're preaching about the law of God. It's that simple. You can't, you can't escape it. Mm, I like it. We're keeping it simple. So I've got a really good question for you now, Lyle. This is back to our Bible study because aren't we under under grace now? We're not under the law anymore. Yeah, absolutely. So why are we talking about Being under the law, being being under grace doesn't do away with the law of God because the law is not what saves you. We've always been under grace. The Bible says Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Noah was saved by grace. That's what the Bible teaches. Everybody who has ever been saved has been saved by grace. No one gets saved any other way. Mm-hmm. And so what does it then mean to be under the law? Uh, let's go over to Romans chapter 6. And if you can read for us, Romans chapter 6, verse 14 and 15. 
For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under the law, but under grace. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under the law, but under grace? Certainly not. Okay, so we need to understand what sin is. Sin is, the Bible says, the breaking of God's law. So let's read this passage. For breaking God's law will not have dominion over you, for you are not under the law, but under grace. What then? Shall we break God's law because we are not under the law, but under grace? God forbid. Mm. What does it mean to be under the law? We need to understand that phrase. And the answer is found, Paul answers it in Romans chapter 3. Why don't you read for us verse 19? Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. Because, as it says in verse 23, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. So notice here that the Bible teaches that the law speaks to those who are under the law, that the whole world can become guilty. So being under the law means to be guilty of breaking the law. It's a little bit like this. If you're driving down the road and you're obeying the speed limit, the law is not speaking to you. It's when you go past the speed limit that the law speaks to you and now you are under the law because you have broken the law and you are guilty of it. If you are under the law, that means you are guilty of breaking the law. It's that simple. All right. And when a policeman pulls you over, then you're in trouble. But if he lets you off, which has happened from time to time, I've been let off once or twice, mm-hmm. uh, then you're going to find that you go out from being under the law to being under grace, which is a really good thing. <laughs> Most of the time, I don't get let off. <laughs> Still it's under the law sad. there, Lyle. Stay under the law. <laughs> All right, Romans 3, verse 31. Before we read this one, you know, this is, this is the verse that Paul really wrote down just to make this issue as plain as he possibly could. It's almost like Paul was seeing in prophetic vision that at the end of time, even Christians would come up with an excuse to get rid of the law of God. And he's like, okay, how can I ensure? How can I write this down in the plainest possible language so that I can ensure that no one ever gets this wrong? Romans 3 verse 31. Do we then make void the law through faith? Certainly not. On the contrary, we establish the law. So what? notice what Paul says. Do we then make void the law through faith? Do we then take the law and nail it to the cross through faith? Certainly not. Mm. Certainly not, he says. We do the opposite of that. What do we do? We establish the law. That's pretty plain. It doesn't get any clearer than that. I really like the way he's written that verse right there, Paul. So we want to remind you all at home that there is this free offer. If you want to do more study on tonight's presentation, you can simply text the word LAW to the number on your screen, 0428-833-386, and you'll get this booklet uh, coming to you. Or if you want to chat with someone more about tonight's presentation, simply text the word CHAT to the same number. I'll just say this, that if you want to know about the law that was nailed to the cross, once again, you can uh, get the free prophetic code Bible study guides and there's a whole Bible study guide that goes through there and shows you that it was the law of sacrifices, sacrificing animals that Jesus nailed to the cross, which is why nobody does that anymore. Mm, Praise God. Good point. All right, Lyle, shall we take just one or two more Yes, yes, one or two more. uh, Starting to run out of time here, but we've got to have some time for some more. We do. This is from Sparrow. Good to have you back, Sparrow. And she's watching us on Facebook and she's asking, will we know when probation closes for the world? It's an interesting question. Revelation chapter 15. 
And when we talk about probation closing, that's just kind of Christianese for the opportunity for salvation coming to an end. Revelation chapter 15, the Bible says the temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power and no human, no man, no human was able to enter into the temple until the seven plagues of the seven angels were fulfilled. Mm -hmm. So here's what we know. The Bible says come boldly to the throne of grace. The Bible says that the throne of grace is in God's temple in heaven. The Bible says that there's coming a time when Jesus leaves that and he's coming back to this earth. And when Jesus leaves the temple in heaven, then the opportunity for salvation has come to an end. Jesus is he's heading back to this earth. It's over. And then we know that the seven plagues fall after that point. Okay, so the Bible doesn't say that we will see, you know, something written in the sky or that God will flick a switch and suddenly, okay, probation is closed. But I do believe that we will recognise when the seven plagues are falling. And that when we see those seven plagues falling, we will recognise that, yes, we are living in the end of the end of the end and that the probation has closed, salvation has come to an end and Jesus is about to return. Some people get a little bit freaked out. I'm just going to address this quickly. They get a little bit freaked out about, well, what am I going to do without Jesus in the temple in heaven mediating for me? You don't have to worry about that because the Bible says, I will never leave you or forsake you. Jesus can leave the temple in heaven. That's not what worries me. The only thing that would ever worry me is if Jesus left me. Mm. And he says he will never do that. That's a very beautiful promise. Yeah, because I could never handle it on my own. Yeah, absolutely. All right, here's a great question. Um, It's going to stretch you, Lyle. Okay. (laughs) This is coming to us from Hannah. She's a viewer on Facebook. She asked, who did Adam and Eve's children marry? Would they have married each other? Sorry, I know it's a bit off topic. Kind of slightly off topic. (laughs) Okay, so here's what you find, Uh, because usually people frame this question in the words of who was Cain's wife, and this has a very simple answer, because Cain's wife was Mrs. Cain, but, you know. Um, Okay, yes, they married the brothers and sisters, and that was quite common all the way down through to the time of Abraham. In fact, it wasn't until the time of Moses, two and a half thousand years after creation, that God outlawed marrying your close relatives. And the reason was, was that when human beings were perfect and they had perfect genes, there was no genetic problem with doing so. Mm -hmm. But since that time, we've become degraded. Sin has degraded the human race. And when it reached the point where it was unhealthy to do so, God says, okay, it's unhealthy now. You can't do this anymore. All right. Very good. You took that very well, Lyle. <laughs> trying to give quick answers. We're just about out of time here. All right. Shall we go back to the Bible study? Okay. Let's, let's, have we got one short one? Or? I can do one more here. Uh, this is from Harry, and he's on Facebook, and he's asking, is Armageddon a literal war or a spiritual war, and how can you know? Yeah, that's a big question. I can't do that. In the time that I've got left, it's like, wow, that's a big question. Yeah, yeah, right we there. can come back to it another time. Okay, there are literal aspects and there are spiritual aspects to the Battle of Armageddon. Uh, <laughs> nobody's ever going to deny that there are both those aspects, and that's a big subject. We'll, 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 probably, tomorrow, we'll probably shelve that one for now. Or okay. We'll go and do the Prophetic Code Bible study course, and you can okay. dig into it in more detail there. <laughs> Sorry about that. All right, uh, let's, let's do our, our, our last bit of this Bible study, and we've got three verses left. Um, really dealing with this final last great battle. And, you know, it kind of it kind of relates to Harry's question right here. So well done, Harry. <laughs> uh, we've got three verses I want you to read. People tell me all the time you don't find the law of God in the New Testament. 
Well, you find more of it in the New than you do in the Old. And I went as far into the New Testament as I could possibly go to see if the law of God was still there. Sharissa, Revelation 12, 17. And the dragon was enraged with the woman and he went to make war with the rest of her offspring who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. This is God's church that keeps the commandments of God and has the testimony of Jesus Christ. The Bible says that it is the rest of her seed or those that remain. This is God's church at the end of time. The Bible says they keep the commandments of God. Revelation 14 and verse 12 describes those who gain the victory over the mark of the beast. That's at the very end of the end of the end of time. The end of the end. Yes, Revelation 14, verse 12. Here is the patience of the saints. Here are those who keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. Okay, Revelation 22 and verse 14. Jesus is finishing the Bible. This is like one of the very last things that Jesus says. Blessed are those who do his commandments, that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter through the gates into the city. There are so many blessings here that are pronounced on those who keep God's law. And... In our last minute, I just want to share a story and it illustrates why some people have a problem with the law of God. There was the story of a woman who met a man and fell in love, had a whirlwind romance. They got married and the day of their honeymoon, when she woke up in the morning, he produced a list of all the things and hands it to her. You must do these. And he was a tyrant and he was a terrible man. And she had all of these things that she had to do and her life was awful. And one day, by the grace of God, he died. And some years later, she married another man who was a lovely man. And they spent decades together in happy marital marital bliss. One day she was cleaning out her attic and she found the old list. And she started to read through and she thought, well, this will be a bit of a lark. Let's have a read of this and see all of the things that that old tyrant used to make me do. And she started to read down through the list. She read the first thing and she's like, well, actually, I do that. And she read the second thing and was like, well, I do that too. And she read the third thing and she's like, I do that as well. And then she read down through the list and she's like, I do everything on this. You see, the problem wasn't with the list. The problem was with love. In one relationship, there was love, and in another, there was no love. If you love God, you will love God's law. If you don't love God, then God's law will be a burden and it will be a tyrant and something that you absolutely hate and detest. God has given us his law. It's a very special gift. He's given it to us because he loves us. Why won't you take the time? This evening even, right now, Spend some time. Go to Exodus chapter 20 and read through the law of God. Put it to memory. It is a wonderful testimony of what God's character is all about. Thank you, Lyle. Tomorrow we're back. What's tomorrow night about? Okay, tomorrow night we're going to be continuing on from here. So we kind of have been zooming in, you know, from the, from the, the planet to the Holy Land to the, to the Holy City to the Holy Temple to the Holy Mountain to the Holy Temple to the Holy place to the to the courtyard of the holy place the most holy place the holy ark of god the holy law of god we're going to do one more zoom tomorrow Ooh, night right. and we're going to get even further deeper into this subject right here and it will be something you have never heard before it'll be the greatest surprise ever well you heard that plug so we look forward to seeing you again tomorrow night remember you can re-watch these presentations share them like the page uh watch watch our facebook page and yeah subscribe and everything we look forward to seeing you back here tomorrow night at 8 p.m. God bless.
This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.